It's not a case of you knowing me because I'm famous. It's just that our churches are very connected. And, uh, you know, I'm from Constantinburg. Luke's there this morning. So great for us to be able to swap out and just keep the partnership alive. I mean, uh, South Penn was planted out of Seabag. So I was even part of this eldership team for, I don't know how long, three years or about. And uh, lots of, lots of good fun and good connections. Um, do you remember back to phys ed or PT or whatever you used to call it back in the day at school? Sometimes your teacher would, you know, call up two people and you had to choose teams. I imagine this morning you were called up, you had to come stand in the front and I said, okay, pick two teams. Okay, start. What, what's the first thing you want to know? What am I picking for? Where is this? What activity are we going to go? And am I, am I going for brains? Am I going for brawn? Am I going for speed? I mean, what is the game? What's the challenge? Because when, when we have an idea of where something's going, it helps us make good decisions. We know what to, to aim for, where to go, where to put our priorities. Well, that's very much what this series that we're in right now is all about. This idea of being eternal beings in a temporary world. We're looking at the big questions of the future, and then we're asking ourselves, well, in, in light of those truths, how, does that, how am I living today? How does that impact my everyday right now here? Now, if you're not yet a Christ follower, maybe you're exploring the claims of Christ, maybe someone invited you along, or you just decided to visit, hope you feel welcomed and relaxed, I'm sure people have said, how's it? Um, if they haven't, they'll never do that again. Everyone's going to make sure they always say hi to a, someone they don't know, because uh, that's what we're all about as a local church. But if you're not yet a Christ follower, what we're doing, in a sense, is looking into the crystal ball of eternity. And we're actually looking at it, and we're asking, what does the Bible have to say about the future? Of course, most of us are Christ followers. And uh, actually, whether we're Christ followers or not, this is such an important uh, conversation for us to have. It's a, it's a very enlightening and critical something we need to think about. I think a good way to describe our current culture for all of us, Christ followers or not, is that it's engineered to feel a bit like a casino. Now, I haven't spent a lot of time in casinos. Maybe you have, but there's... I said two things, but someone told me after the first meeting that there's actually three things you will never see in a casino. Any guesses? Clocks? Windows? Exits or a map. Very right. That's the one I missed. And an air conditioner. I'm sure they want to make you comfortable. <laughs> but you never see windows and clocks and a map or an exit. You know, there's going to be a lot of lights, a lot of sound, you know, flashing lights, colors, all designed to get your attention and keep your attention. It, they're designed to keep you in the moment, forgetting about the world out there, your real life. The entire ecosystem is kind of created to keep you distracted, engaged in this bubble, not thinking of anything out there until you've blown through all your cash with no sense of time, space, or responsibility. And you know, windows are a problem for casinos because when you look at a window, it can break the spell of this bubble, of the here and now, of living in this moment for this moment. A window can alert you to the truth that actually there's a world out there, that you have a life out there, that you have responsibilities out there, and, and clocks are just as damaging. 
You know, you know the, the lack of clocks, you, you lose sense of time. You can walk in in the afternoon, you don't even realize it, but actually it's pitch black outside, the night is, is moving on, and uh, you've got no sense of time, no sense of needing to be somewhere for other responsibilities or for living your life. You're just caught in the here and now. And then someone also said there's no maps or exits because actually that no one wants you to find your way out. It's like a labyrinth. You can walk around and find yourself disoriented. And so you just, everything's about keeping you in this bubble of living for right here, right now. But here's the thing about the teaching of the Bible about the future is that it's actually, it, it creates for us a window into ultimate reality. It helps us to break out of this kind of, this casino mindset. You know, clocks, they, also, they help us to start to think critically about how am I living today? What am I doing with my life in these moments in light of the biggest story that's unfolding all around us, the story of God? And, and of course, when it comes to the map, the Bible helps us to find our way out of this bubble of the casino where we're just living for the here and now and actually causes us and leads us and shines the light, uh, uh, makes the light for our feet. We can find freedom from that mentality into the more that God has for us as we join our lives to his eternal plans. So what we're doing in this series, Eternal Beings in a Temporary World, is we're looking at some key data points of the future. So, I mean, the Bible isn't like a crystal ball that tells us the specifics of our daily lives or what changes are in the pipeline for us. Okay, the Bible is not like a horoscope that's going to tell you, you know, how, who you're going to meet or how your fortunes are just about to change for the good or the bad. You know, when it comes to the future, when it comes to your future, the Bible is very clear on some major moments or major realities that are coming your way. And as these major realities come into view and we get a little more clarity on our own future, it increasingly informs our thinking and our planning and our living in the present. And I believe God wants to, to help us to break out of the casino culture that we can get caught up in even as Christ follows, he wants to lead us into greater truth, into greater freedom, into greater significance. So a little teaser for next week. Next week, we're looking at the Bible's teaching on heaven. What, what will it be like? And what does that awaken in us? What is, how does that impact us? You know, Spurgeon said this about heaven. The streets of gold will have small attraction to us. The music of angels will but slightly enchant us. Compared with the king in the midst of his throne, we shall see God. And as we consider that, we have to ask ourselves, how does that impact us? But today we're looking at the return of the King, the return of the King, Jesus Christ. Now, usually in a message in Common Ground, we have one key text when we, when we share a message and we work out that. Today I want to do a kind of a survey across the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus and the epistles. Um, I'm not going to look at all of them because there's actually lots of scriptures but we're just going to take this overview. I want to start by, by taking us back to the slide that Luke introduced you to last week. It's, it's the timeline for eternity as described by the Scriptures. You can see the first advent. That's the first coming of Jesus. You might not see this. This is hell and heaven, and I think you can read the rest. Um, it's a bit dark. But at the first coming of Jesus, he came to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. 
That's what Jesus was all about at his first coming. With Jesus, heaven invaded earth, an earth that is ruined, stained, decaying through the impact and reality of sin. And Jesus came to crush sin, to defeat the devil. And and Jesus did it by living the perfect life. A life void of the impact, the decay, the rebellion that sin introduces into every single human being that's ever lived except him. Jesus lived a life that we could never live. His life was utterly unique in its sinlessness and perfect obedience to God. In fact, his life in its purity was the only payment acceptable to God for the forgiveness of our sins. And so he willingly went to the cross to die so that we could live. He died so that we could experience life and life to the full. This is what Jesus did in his first coming. And in his resurrection, he became the first fruit of a new humanity that would emerge as they placed their faith in his death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, for reconciliation with God. And so they too would share in this resurrection life. And then after that, Jesus returned to heaven. But now, while he was on earth, in, in his three years of public ministry, from, three to, from 30 to 33 years old, Jesus taught and demonstrated the ways of heaven into earth. He taught us and demonstrated what heaven is like and brought it into earth. But he also trained up followers that after he would go, would continue this work of seeing heaven breaking into earth. So he he trained up followers that would continue this work. But more than that, he also gifted those followers with power. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on these followers for this task of seeing the kingdom breaking into earth. You know what Jesus is doing right now? He's interceding for us. Jesus is right now praying for us to his Father, that he's building his church. That's what Jesus is doing with his time. And what this tells us, the fact that Jesus demonstrated and he raised up followers to continue and he powered Christ followers, is is that salvation is not a rescue plan, an escape plan to those who do just enough to escape this world and make it into heaven. I'm, I'm kind of recapping a little bit of Luke's message last week. What salvation is truly about is getting caught up into what Jesus came to do. It's being part of those who are trained and equipped and empowered by the Spirit to see heaven breaking into earth through your life, through our lives as a church, through through our lives as Christ followers in the global church. You know, Paul, when he describes Christ followers in the New Testament, he he refers to them as ambassadors of heaven, ambassadors of Christ. We're deployed here on earth, but actually our citizenship is in heaven. That actually our mission is to to represent the true king in this world through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're a Christ follower, this is your reality. You have been given your ambassadorship. You are an ambassador of Christ. You have been given power from on high through the Holy Spirit. You have been invited and swept up into the most significant story that's unfolding that will ever be told, the story of heaven breaking into earth. I mean, look at this verse in Colossians 1. 
It says, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. He has. This is past tense. His kingdom is breaking into the world through our lives. If we can just put that slide back up. When Jesus came the first time and the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, it was like the curtains were drawn back and something of the future entered into this world, into time and space. But we need to understand something as crossroads that the future is breaking in, but it has not fully come. We can see that eternity has entered into our world, but our current experience, we're living in the tension between the future breaking in but not yet fully coming. Example, we can pray for your physical healing and heaven can invade earth and and cause a healing, but our bodies are still decaying. Death will still be on the cards for us. Our bodies will still let us down because we haven't yet received these new bodies that are unique and powerful and beautiful. So I'm saying at the first coming, Jesus ushered in the kingdom of heaven into a broken and decaying world, and at the second coming, he will fully and finally make all things new. That bottom timeline of our lives comes to an end, and eternity continues. I mean, one of the best analogies to describe this overlap, theologians call it the now and the not yet, that the kingdom of heaven is here but not fully here. It's by Oscar Kuhlman, and he uses World War II, and he, just, he says it's almost like D-Day and V-E-Day. The first coming of Jesus is like the D-Day when the Allies landed in Normandy and the victory was set in motion as Jesus defeated Satan's sin and death on the cross. But it was only many years later that Germany surrendered to the Allies at what's known as VE Day or Victory in Europe. And that's like the second coming of Jesus where he finally subjugates and does away with his enemies once and for all. And in the time between D-Day and V-E Day, the time, the age in which we live, darkness is being driven back as the kingdom of heaven breaks into this world through the church, through Christ followers. Okay, so let me focus in on on the return of the king, the, the second coming of Jesus Christ into this world. It's the next big data point on our timeline. So I want to answer two questions. What will actually happen when Jesus returns? What's that going to be like? And and then what does that mean for us? How does that impact us? What, what, What do we do differently in light of this reality of the return of the king? I do need to acknowledge a couple of things. And one is that there is a lot of mystery surrounding the return of Jesus. There's a lot of things that we can't be clear about. There are a lot of things that believers disagree on when it comes to eschatology or the study of the end times or the study of the last things. You know, you get the millennium and, and, and premillennialism and amillennialism and there's so much. This is the thousand-year reign of Christ, when it happens and how it'll happen and then there's the rapture and when is it and how is it and when's it gonna happen? You know, there's a lot of disagreement about these things, but I don't wanna go there today. What I wanna focus in on today is those things that are generally and widely agreed upon by the church. And there's actually a fair amount. So at the Council of Nicaea, back in AD 325, this is what the church fathers declared as part of the Nicene Creed. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. 
We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. It's actually a lot of this remarkable consensus for around a topic that has so much a propensity for disagreements. And you can see this isn't new doctrine. I mean, this is AD 325. This is, these are the ancient truths of our faith. And we can see that Jesus is coming again in glory, that he will judge the living and the dead, that the dead will be raised to life, and that we will live with him in the world to come, which will have no end. So we, we may not know the details of the future, exactly what's going to happen, but we have a clear understanding of what the future holds for us in terms of these very important occurrences. So what can we know for sure? I want to answer, I think it's three questions. What can we know for sure about the return of Jesus Christ? Well, firstly, it's going to be personal, visible, and physical. So men of Galilee, this is Acts 1, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This is as Jesus was taken into heaven. The same Jesus who was taken away from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So Jesus himself is personally coming back in his physical body. Jesus' return is not going to be some kind of a mystical experience or a, a spiritual awakening of some kind. It's physical, it's visible, and it's him. And the second thing we know for sure is that it's going to be sudden. It's going to catch people off guard. Matthew 24. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect it. So if you know your Bible, you'll know Peter in the New Testament. He says that the the return of Jesus will be like a thief in the night, coming unexpectedly and suddenly. But it's also, number three, going to be dramatic and triumphant. So it's going to be physically Jesus returning suddenly, but with great drama and excitement. 1 Thessalonians, it says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead will, in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. I mean, you're not going to read about the return of Jesus on page three of the Sunday Times. It's going to be front page. In fact, no one even needs to look at the newspaper. Everybody will know the king has returned. Nothing will be the same again. I mean, this idea of the trumpet call, and Daniel nailed it this morning, but it's not like a drum roll. It's not like a, you know, for effect, like, hey, Jesus is coming. No, no. The trumpet call is a military tool used to move an army on. And it's almost like this declaration as Christ returns, this trumpet call that says the new age is upon us. We are moving on into a new era, a new age, as the old age comes to an end. And and we see from this text two things happen. The Christ followers who have died will be resurrected first, part of this triumphant procession. And then Christ followers who are still alive will be caught up with them and all believers past and present will come down to earth as part of this procession. I mean, can you imagine it? Every Christ follower. I wonder if we'll recognize any of these guys. You ever wondered about the idea of an entourage? I mean, this is the ultimate entourage. Jesus with every believer caught up in the air. 
And the return of Jesus will spell the end of this current age and usher in a new heaven and a new earth that will last forever. So here's another question I want to answer is when. When is Jesus coming back? And there's many texts. Jesus himself speaks about it and throughout the New Testament that make it abundantly clear that we cannot know the day and the hour. We cannot know exactly when Jesus is coming back. Matthew 24, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, a word of caution. The Bible does speak about certain signs or global activities or happenings that, that will occur before he returns. And, and you know, some of us are very interested in those kind of things and we scrutinize them and we ask ourselves, you know, has this happened or hasn't this happened? But I want to cautious us into falling into the trap of convincing ourselves that Jesus isn't coming back soon because those signs still have to happen. And so actually, we've got a lot of time on our hands. I don't think we can be certain enough around these signs and wonders. And actually, the, the purpose of Jesus' teaching, the emphasis of his teaching, is clearly to make us watchful and ready for his imminent return, that he could come back at any moment. And I don't think the, these signs that we can sometimes look at, they're not intended to, to cause us to push out the coming of Jesus. They're actually there to heighten our excitement because we realize that time is moving on. We realize that, that sin and the decay of sin and the impact of sin is, is devastating our world and our lives. And so we anticipate with even more fervor the return of the king, the wrapping up of human history as we know it in the beginning of eternity. Okay, so... That's when, what is Jesus actually going to do when he returns? Now, I'm going to do some broad strokes here because we're unpacking this over the next three weeks. Jesus, the king, will bring final judgment. That's what we can be sure about. John 5, it says, this is out of the ESV, For as the Father has life in himself, so he granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgments because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Every person who has ever lived will be present on that day. And there's gonna be two aspects to this final judgment. There'll be the wicked will be punished and the righteous will be rewarded. And remember, even Christ followers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's not a judgment as to see like which Christ followers are really saved and which ones aren't. Remember, those who are saved will be caught up with him in the air. It's going to be clear, those who are his. But as believers, we need to know that on that day, that at the return of Christ, our work and our efforts to see God's kingdom come will be assessed by Christ. And we'll go more into judgment. Next week, we look at heaven and the week after hell. And then the final week, week five, we look at, at death. So join us for these few more weeks. I mean, 2 Corinthians 5.10. This is Paul writing to believers. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things, we, things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Sobering stuff. Telling you, preaching and preparing and then preaching, you 
you realize, okay, sobering things have been very challenging. And for believers, there's the standing before the judgment of God for, for how we've lived and stewarded our lives. There's also this, these rewards that are due for Christ followers. I mean, here's an example from 2 Timothy 4. It says, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. See, when Jesus the King returns, everything will be brought into the light. Everything will be uncovered. Everything that was previously hidden, tucked away, previously gotten away with, will be brought into the full view of the fair and just judge who will reward and punish accordingly. You know, sometimes as Christ followers, we can, we can reflect on life or the world with its wickedness, its tragedies, uh, the pain, the hurts. I wonder, you know, how can God let this happen? Or how can the wickedness of people in all its forms, you know, whether it's politically or physically or psychologically, this depravity, how can it seem to go on? And the answer is partly, I don't know. But I know the other part of the answer is the story isn't over yet. That on that day when the king returns, he will require all accounts paid in full. All things will be resolved, and no one will cry foul or unfair on that day before the fair and just judge. Thomas Moore says it so beautifully that earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. Justice will be dealt. There will be healing and the righting of wrongs in Christ's judgment of sin as he completes our salvation. And then secondly, well, what is Jesus going to do on that? Well, Jesus the King will renew all things and present us to God. 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Wow, Jesus will do away with the impact and the decay of sin and present us and our world new to God the Father. We will be fully and finally saved, rescued. Hebrews 9, it says, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. We're going to be rescued from the power, the impact, the influence of sin. We'll be purified and perfected. We'll receive these resurrected bodies that are beautiful and indestructible. And there'll be this moment when we're presented to God the Father in this incredible new state. And it's not only us, it's our world that will be made new when Jesus returns. N.T. Wright says, God's plan is not to abandon the world, the world that he said is very good. Rather, he intends to remake it. And when he does, he will raise all his people to new body life to live in it. This is the promise of the Christian gospel. And we always wonder, will our hobbies be present in heaven? And who knows? The world and the universe will once again, like at creation, 
be completely free of sin. It will radiate its full potential beauty, displaying the glory and the splendor of God the way He always intended it at that creation moment before sin entered into this world. And this new heavens and this new earth, it's going to be pulsating with the nearness of God, but also the transcendent power and sovereignty and glory of God. I mean, we will be surrounded by His goodness and His power. That's what He's going to do. So let's answer the final question. How then should we live? How then should we live? I want to draw our attention back to that casino culture trap that I, I think we can live in in our current day and age. What we're seeing here is that God is giving us a window into our future. That he's, he's creating a moment in time for us to consider our, our true lives, our true priorities. That what are we doing in this moment and how does that link with where things are going? These are not hopeful things. These are not things that may happen. We will all stand and witness the return of Christ. And we will all stand before Him. So how should we live? Well, we should live every day of our lives in light of that day. And I think there's three ways that that works out. The first one, there's no slide for. I think, I think it's to let hope see us through. You know, sometimes we experience such trauma, such difficulty, such setback, even persecution in our lives. I think as we consider where our future is going, we can live with hope, knowing that this is not forever. But I think also that hope can, can, in a sense, come from the future into our present as we realize that God is with us, that He understands, that He identifies, that He Himself has suffered he is the servant king, and he walks with us, and he will walk with us, and we will walk with him forever. So let's live in that hope. But secondly, this reality of, of the return of the king, let it motivate you to kingdom living. Let it motivate you for kingdom living. I mean, Paul uses this truth of the second coming to motivate Timothy, his protege, he exhorts him, he says to Timothy 4.1, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. He's saying, Timothy, Jesus is coming again. Timothy, you're going to stand before him. Timothy, go for it. Give yourself to Jesus, Timothy. And the same applies to our lives. In light of the return of this king, we must be mindful and motivated for kingdom living here and now. We must be steadfast as Christ followers, steadfast in an ever-changing culture. We must be single-minded in our pursuit of Jesus and seeing his kingdom break into this world through our lives. Single-minded. We need to resist the pull of culture that we are neck deep in because we live in this world to form. Culture wants to form and inform your present living, your present priorities, your present pursuits. 
And culture doesn't want you to think about eternity or think about where this is all going or think about that day. But God is calling you to see the bigger picture. I mean, as I'm speaking, I'm, I'm sure that, that you're experiencing God speaking to you maybe about something or a few things or this desire to, to do things. But and so go with what God's speaking to you about. But there's, there's things we probably ought to reflect on. Like how faithfully have we used our time and our resources and our talents in the time that God has given us for our moments living between this, these ages of his first and second coming? How well have we pursued the opportunities to see God's kingdom come? Whether that's in someone's life through an interaction, through sharing the gospel, through a pair of faith, through a healing, through encouragement, through serving you know, culture, and through work and creating opportunities to see God's kingdom break in. How committed have we been to serve and love those in the church, to practically just serve and edify and create the space like people have this morning for us to gather and be encouraged? How well have you served and loved in and beyond the church? I think the return of, the, of King Jesus reminds us that we are not saved for a life of aimlessness or indifference, until we die and go to heaven. But we're, we're saved for a life to serve God and in dependence on His Spirit to see His kingdom break into this world through us. And this doesn't mean becoming a full-time paid pastor in the local church. I hope you know that. I hope you know that. It means in everything you do, wherever you find yourself, I mean, me as a full-time paid pastor can never have the reach that we have as a community into every sphere and nook and cranny of this world. In everything you do and in everything you're becoming, put Christ at the center. Put Christ at the center. Aaron Treadway, a friend of mine, he recently wrote a book. He puts it like this. Significance isn't found in what you do. It's found in what you pursue. Whatever you give your hand to, put Christ at the center. We know Jesus, Matthew 6, invited us to seek first his kingdom. So I want to say to us today that there is a very sobering truth about the second coming of Jesus, even for Christ followers. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life on wealth or the pursuit of comfort or anything else. I'll spend your life in whatever you do in seeing God's kingdom come. Make it your life's purpose to to make earth as it is in heaven. Live every day in light of that day. And then finally, how should we live? I want to say to us, be ready. I mean, if you're not yet a Christ follower, there is a day coming when the king will return and you will stand before him. And the question is, will you be found in him or trusting in something else? Will you find yourself stranded or sitting on the fence or being swept up into this triumphal and joyful procession? Will it be a moment of celebration or a moment of deep pain and regret? You know, Jesus makes it very, very clear that there will be many, many on that day that will experience deep remorse and regret. Surrender your life to King Jesus. I don't want you to be one of those people that experiences this deep regret. That day is coming. 
Surrender your life to Jesus through faith in Christ. It's believing and accepting that Jesus didn't just die for the world or he didn't die for the person next to you or in front of you. He died for you. He died for your sins, for your rebellion, for your disregard of of King Jesus. He died so that you can experience life, reconciliation, being reunited with your heavenly Father as he deals with your sin. And you can surrender your life to him through a simple prayer of faith and dependence and a heart that says, God, will you remake and renew me? And hey, most of us here, we are Christ followers. John Wesley was once asked, what would you do if you knew Jesus would come again, this time tomorrow? And this is basically what he said. I would go to bed, go to sleep, wake up in the morning, and go on with my work. For I would want him to find me doing what he has appointed. I mean, it's just so beautiful. To be ready for the return of the king is to be faithfully obeying him in the presence, in whatever lot he has given you. Uh, You know, a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a grandfather, a grandmother son or a daughter, someone who's working, someone who's, you know, whatever it is that the station that God has given you, be faithful to him in that place. You will be ready. Break free of that casino culture of the present age and freshly surrender to God's activity in your life, Christ follower. So that when that day comes and that day is coming, you can share in that indescribable delight of hearing these words, well done, Good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Let me pray for us. Father God, your word has been glimpsed this window into the future. As we get a time check, We recognize, God, that our lives are part of something far greater than the here and now only. Hey, if if you're sitting out there, I just want to remind you that that this message and this truth about Jesus, it's, it's not about condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What Jesus is doing today, he's offering us an opportunity to freshly say yes to his goodness and his mercy and his kindness in reorientating and renewing our lives and our focus on seeing his kingdom come. So don't take a step back in condemnation. Take a step toward your loving father. Say, God, I need you. I need you to transform my affections, my desires, my wants. God, I want you to reorientate every part of me. God, I I need you to fill me with your spirit like never before. God, I need you. Let that be the cry of your heart this morning because he is a good, good father. And God, would you hear every prayer? Would you hear every desire? And God, would you use us in the time that we have to see heaven invade earth for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.